The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, um, I absolutely hate flying in airplanes. I hate fly- I don't know why I specified in airplanes as if there's an alternative way. I hate flying. And I hate being in airports. And it's not the long waits. It's not the overpriced bottles of Dasani. It's not the cramped spaces and the recycled air sitting in a box with other sweaty human beings on a hot tarmac. It's none of those things. It's because inevitably, when I'm on an airplane, the person that is sitting next to me is always going to ask what it is that I do for a living. And I know we have a few people in the room who have been in ministry, who have done the pastoral ministry thing, and you hopefully can sort of relate to the awkwardness that always comes about when you tell some, when you break the news to somebody that I'm in vocational ministry, I'm a pastor. Because inevitably for me, there's one of two responses. The first is youth pastor, right? You're a youth pastor. That's what you're telling me. It's, no, I'm, 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 a, I'm a pastor of a church, and I, I preach on a regular basis. To children? To, no. I'm pastor, pastor. The second response is always, and my wife has even seen this, is people begin confessing when it was they last attended church. It's like, oh, your pastor? Yeah, I grew up um, going to church, and my grandma used to take me, and I, I really need to get back in church. You know, I, I, should, uh, I should probably call grandma, you know, while I'm thinking about it kind of thing. Just kind of you immediately see the guilt kind of come over them. It's always extremely awkward for me. And that's kind of, uh, I guess, the, the call or, or the, uh, the result of life being a vocational pastor. I heard a pastor say one time, and I found this to be very relatable, he said that people feel the, about me the way that you feel about performers at a renaissance fair. It's a weirdo who plays dress-up and, and performs rituals from a bygone era for a very niche group of people. That's how people see pastors. Now, it might be hard for you to give a, maybe a, a really clear kind of definition as to what a pastor is. But if I say the word pastor, you're going to have a whole flood of associations come to mind for you, good and bad. I feel certain of that. And I'm curious, if I were to ask you, what is a pastor? What does a pastor do? How would you respond to that? How would you answer that question? Here's what a pastor does. Maybe if you grew up in church, or depending on what denomination you grew up in, or maybe you grew up away from the church, maybe you had a good or a bad experience, you might say something like this. A pastor is a visionary leader who gets a word from the Lord about the direction that the church is intended to go, and then he's called to go execute that vision. That might be how you answer that question. Or maybe when someone asks, you know, what is a pastor, what does a pastor do, you'd say, well, they're teachers. They can slice and dice it really thin, and they're, they're really good at communicating complicated ideas that are present within the Bible. They're brilliant orators, you might say. Maybe not about the, this group of pastors, but, you know, the, hypothetically. Maybe you'd answer that question by saying that pastors are something like counselors. They walk with people that are hurting, that are struggling, that are confused, that need brotherhood or they need care. That's what pastors do. Or maybe you would say that pastors primarily serve a practical purpose. They do things like serve the Lord's Supper and they officiate weddings and funerals. They're, they're there for those kind of key junctures in your life. They go visit you when you're on your deathbed or go visit those who are sick and ailing. Maybe it's all of those things. Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe it's some combination of all of these things put together. Maybe you have no idea how you would answer that question, and you're eager to finally receive clarity on what it is that pastors do. Now, today, we are at a crucial turning point in Acts. 
In Acts chapter 20, we're observing Paul essentially finishing his third of his three missionary journeys. This is a kind of formal close to Paul's ministry, at least as Acts records it, before returning to Jerusalem, beginning his tours of trials and imprisonments that we'll see in the subsequent weeks. What we have here in this passage is a moment of Paul at the end of his planting and missions effort, now entrusting the ministry to the elders at the churches that he's established. In a kind of passing of the torch moment, the apostolic ministry is being handed over from the apostles to the elders of these churches. And it kind of functions as a word for all churches and all pastors and all places as to what pastors are called to do and be for the church. This is really interesting to me because we get a glimpse into what the established church was doing, you know, in Acts chapter 20, several thousand years ago. But we also get a glimpse of Paul's vision for ministry for pastors. Again, what Paul envisions, what he's calling pastors to do, and what he's calling pastors to be. So that's what we're going to see in this passage. And then at the end, we'll have a few words about the church's response to that. Now, we won't read verses 13 through 17 again. Well, we're just going to kind of speedily move past that because this is setting the stage for the final location of this speech. So the journey gets going again, and we're told that ultimately Paul lands in Miletus, and he calls down the Ephesian elders. He's hustling, verse 16, to get to Jerusalem by the time of Pentecost. We talked about that last week, that he's, he's wanting to get back to Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, which is the celebration of the harvest, because he wants to go show and, and make the Jerusalem church known what God has harvested from the nations. And so he's hustling to get back, verse 16, to Jerusalem. And it tells us that he doesn't want to get caught up in Asia. He doesn't want to get caught up spending a bunch of time in Asia. And it's probably two reasons for this. The first is the last time that we see Paul in Asia, in chapter 19, is when we have the riot at Ephesus. So Paul's probably not super excited to go back to Ephesus and maybe start another riot, if he can help it. The other reason that he doesn't want to go to Asia is probably because he knows how deeply he loves these brothers and sisters. And if you've ever been around people that you haven't seen for a long time, and you plan to just go spend a couple of hours, it has a way of elongating and kind of taking the whole day. Paul knows if I go and, and I go spend time with the brothers and sisters at Ephesus, I'm going to get stuck there for a while. So instead of doing that, he summons them down to Miletus. Verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, and testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know, excuse me, I know that none of uh, you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now this is, this, is kind of a, this is kind of a sweet scene, actually. It's kind of a moving picture. Paul goes and, and he meets with the elders at Ephesus, with whom he spent three years, brothers that he loves dearly. He says, 
as I'm headed to Jerusalem, I know what probably awaits me. I mean, the Spirit testifies to me that imprisonment and even death are the things that awaits me. And I'm not going to see you guys again. I'm going to my execution, and I'm not going to see you guys again. So this is kind of a, a really moving picture of what it is Paul wants to say to these elders, to these brothers, before he moves on. Now, again, this is, I think, intended to function as a kind of formal close to Paul's ministry. He's not expecting to return. Again, he's, he's not going to be continuing his missionary journeys. He's going to have opportunity to testify to Jesus, but it's in trials, and it's before rulers and governing authorities. He sees his ministry as, as a missionary and as apostle in, in some way coming to an end. And so he's entrusting this ministry to these brothers. It's hard not to think about passages like Elijah and Elisha. When Elijah hands the mantle off to Elisha. Or it's hard not also to think about passages in the Old Testament where you have a, a fading, dying patriarch who blesses and entrusts blessings to those that follow after him. I'm a, a lughead, and so I think about everything in football analogies. It's, it's almost like a, a, a head coach who's been a long-tenured head coach at a certain university, and he brings in a head coach in waiting, and there comes a day when he's going to retire from coaching, and he's going to entrust coaching and leadership to those who would succeed him. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He sees his ministry, the, the plane is landing, and I'm handing this over to you brothers. Here he recounts and reminds them of, of what his ministry actually looked like, the kinds of flavors that his ministry had. Verse 35, uh, 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 I'm misspeaking, let's see, verse uh, 17 rather. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. He says, you have seen how I have modeled and practiced ministry. Paul's inviting them to see his model and, and to embody the things that Paul models. You yourself know how I lived among you. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul models ministry by first drawing attention to his humility. Ministry is to be characterized by humility. The way that he humbly and obediently served Jesus through tears and through hardships. Humility, not thinking less of himself, but thinking of himself less. Just getting lost in the service of the Lord for you. Paul's, in some ways, defending himself. He's like, I didn't do this for gain. I didn't do this for glory. I did this from love, for Jesus and for you. Remember my humility. And then in verses 22 and following, Paul draws attention to his faithfulness. Look at this. He says, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I know that imprisonment and death await me. Nevertheless, verse 24, my life is of no value to me. My, my only calling is to finish the task that I have been giving. Paul embodies a single-mindedness to the call. My life is of no value apart from finishing what the Lord Jesus gave me to finish. Finishing just feels, I mean, as I read this and as you think about it in the context of ministry, I mean, I feel this. I mean, finishing in ministry feels like a superpower these days. I mean, we'll get here in a second, but how often, I mean, it feels like daily you read about a high-profile pastor or, or shoot, I mean, any kind of pastor 
who doesn't finish the task that the Lord Jesus has given him, who is disqualified from the race for sin or being a bonehead or any number of different things. But Paul says, my reason for living is finishing the task that the Lord Jesus gives me. It's incredible. And the third thing that he draws attention to is his courage. Look at verses 20 and 27. It talks about how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Verse 27 again, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Twice. He says, I didn't hermit crab. I didn't shrink back into the shell. I didn't, out of fear of man or out of intimidation, I didn't recoil. I didn't shrink back from speaking the truth. Instead, I was courageous. I gave you the full counsel of God in public from house to house. He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all because I didn't withhold anything. I spoke the truth clearly, completely. My conscience is clear. Think about how difficult it is to be courageous, especially in ministry. I mean, the temptation is always to pander. I mean, if I'm being really honest, this is the temptation that I face every single week. It's because I know how some of you guys are going to hear this passage, and you're going to know how I say this particular thing, and it's there. Whether I like it or not, it is there. It is in my head to pander to that and to shrink back, to shade it this way or that way based on who you're speaking to. You, You know this in your experience as well, right? And Paul says, I had the courage not to shrink back. I didn't recoil. I didn't hermit crab at all. Now, as we think about these traits that Paul sort of draws attention to here, I mean, for those who are in leadership or, or for those who aspire to leadership in the church, I mean, it's, it's really worth reflecting on Paul's example here. Are these things able to be said of you, Christian? Are you humble? Are you, is your life characterized by self-forgetfulness and service? Or are you always thinking of self? Are there any tasks that you would consider beneath you? Or are you happy to embrace any ministry that the Lord Jesus gives you? Are you resentful of the opportunities that the Lord gives you? Maybe he gives you tears and trials. Or do you humbly receive that as ministry from the Lord? Are you faithful? Is your life characterized by a single-minded devotion, a long obedience in the same direction? Or is there a tendency to be choked out by civilian affairs? 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says that a minister is to be like a soldier who's just got kind of a, a different set of priorities from everybody else. Do you have that focus on different things, and are, are you faithfully pursuing those different things? And then are you courageous? Do you speak the truth? Speak the whole counsel of God, or, or are you dominated by fear of man and fear of rejection or fear of being mis- misunderstood? Paul models humility, faithfulness, and courage, and and I was, as, I, as I was thinking about this and reflecting, I mean, this all sounds a lot like somebody else in the Bible. The Lord Jesus, right? Humility. In Philippians chapter 2, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, yet took the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. The Lord Jesus, who owns all things, gave himself for us. The Lord Jesus is faithful. I think of Hebrews 12. For the joy that's set before Jesus, he endured the suffering the suffering of the cross for our salvation. And of course, the courage of the Lord Jesus. Mark chapter 10, he did not shrink back from giving himself as a ransom for many. Paul models a kind of Christ-likeness in ministry, and it's worth considering for us, seeing it as an invite to model these same habits and these same traits, especially for those who would aspire to leadership. But then Paul transitions just from recounting the shape of his ministry to a specific exhortation. Verse 28, 
pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Verse 28. The word overseers is used to describe the position, to to, to describe who it is that he's speaking to. This word here, sometimes translated overseer, sometimes translated bishop. It's used, bishop, by the way, is Aaron's favorite title. He's not here this morning, so I can say that. Be sure to call Aaron, Bishop Aaron. It's, in the New Testament, the word for pastor, elder, and bishop are used interchangeably. You know, some traditions will see it as denoting different ranks or responsibilities in leadership. But really, all of these words are used to describe the same office, office in the New Testament, with each word kind of highlighting a different aspect of the office. Right, so it's not a different office necessarily, but it's sort of highlighting a, just kind of a different shade as to what that office does. But each is used to describe the group of men who lead a local church or pastor. The responsibility that Paul exhorts them to bear most essentially boils down to this. Paul exhorts them to be guardians, called with vigilance to care for God's flock. Or we could say it like this. We'll have it on the screen. What is it that pastors do? You ready? They guard themselves and the church. They guard themselves and the church. What do pastors do? They guard themselves and the church. They guard the flock of God. They are shepherds. Now, if I were to ask you about the word shepherd, kind of do that exercise where I invite you to give me feedback on what it is you think when you hear the word shepherd, I'll tell you what comes to mind for me. When I was a kid, we had these precious moments, Bibles, And for whatever reason, the thing that sticks out to me is this adorable little shepherd, this precious moments shepherd. You guys know what I'm talking about, the precious moments, statues and stuff like that. They're these big-eyed, big-eared, big-headed little things, and they're always very adorable and very sweet. Think of the the precious moments shepherd. Or maybe you think of kindly old men at, at your church in the Christmas cantata. Or the famous painting of Jesus cuddling a lamb. That's sort of what comes to mind when you hear shepherd. And all of that... Is true that there's a kind of tenderness to shepherding. But also a large part of what a shepherd did was to keep watch over the sheep. I mean, sheep are a senseless kind of animal, a very easy prey. And shepherds are, are literally sheep herders. In the ancient Near East, they would essentially live out in the wilderness, wandering with these sheep, taking them from water source to water source, from pasture to pasture. And a large part of what they did was keep an eye out for bad guys. Look out for wolves and lions and bears and other kinds of predators. And that's what Paul is drawing attention to in verse 28. He says, pay careful attention. Verse 31, be alert. Against what? Verse 29, fierce wolves not sparing the flock. There's predators who intend on ravaging the sheep. And God's people, a common theme in the Bible, are portrayed as sheep, as vulnerable in need of care and protection. And then there are those who prey on God's people, portrayed as wolves. Paul says the reason is that there are predators on the loose. Be alert and be vigilant for those who would prey on the sheep. Don't be sleepy like Eutychus last week, but be alert. Guard the church from wolves. This is very much in keeping with Paul's writing in his letters and books like Galatians or Colossians or 1 and 2 Timothy and the like. Uh, One commentator talking about this time period said that this region was already a virtual seedbed of heresy by this time. 
Right, so Paul is, is, is he, he understands that they're kind of in a pre, uh, uh, precarious position. He understands that as his ministry, his public ministry is going to be ceasing and he's going to be handing it over to these brothers, they need clarity that there are things that are at stake and there are people opposed to the truth of God and they must be vigilant and look out for these false teachers. Paul echoes this again and again in his letters in the New Testament, but it's not just Paul either. John, again and again, warns against false teachers and, and tells the churches to test the spirits. Peter does the same thing. Jude does the same thing. Contend for the faith. Guard against wolves. Because there are wolves who are seeking to devour and lead astray God's people. They intend to draw the disciples away through false teaching or bad teaching. Or intend to abuse and exploit the disciples for things like glory and profit. So Paul says, be alert. So if we're to answer the question as to what pastors do, we can at least say this, that pastors are given to stand in the gap and guard God's sheep through good, true teaching, by, by warning against bad teaching and bad teachers, by offering correction and wisdom to sheep when they see them being led astray. They're guardians. That's the call of the pastor. And it's good for us to remember that the same truths that Paul is identifying here are the same truths that we experience today. Even now, there are wolves who are out there who want to prey on God's church. Sometimes, knowingly, they are shady and they're manipulative and they see Christians as easy targets. They see that they can get money or glory from Christians. This happened in Paul's time. It happens in our time. There are hucksters and abusers and all kinds of nasty people in the world who want to exploit God's church. But there's also wolves who don't realize they're wolves. One mistake that we can make is thinking that, uh, that someone necessarily self-consciously steps into the role of the wolf, but not necessarily. One of the, the practices, the key practices of a disciple today is to have a discerning digital diet. Because there's a lot of people who are producing a lot of content, and they think themselves shepherds, and they think themselves as guardians of the prey, but actually, they're wolves. They're preying on God's people through bad teaching. And so it is essential for us with our podcasts. And listen, I'm the chief offender at that. I mean, I love podcasts and love the online content. But it is essential for us to be discerning with our digital diet. And let me even submit this. It's essential that we invite brothers and sisters in, in our church and even invite pastors in to speak into the things that we listen to. Because Paul says that there are wolves out there and they're hungry and eager to prey upon God's sheep. But the Lord in his grace provides pastors. But you notice, that's not actually the first thing that Paul says pastors are to guard. What does he say? What has Paul called them to guard first? Verse 28. Yourselves. It makes sense that Paul, if, if, if he's calling pastors to guard the flock, that the guardians themselves must be healthy and whole. Right? It makes sense that the guardians themselves are able to discern the threats and that they have the ability to withstand the threats and not also be susceptible to them. Verse 30, he warns that from even among you, it reminds me of Jesus saying, my betrayer is at the table. From even among you, wolves will arise. In Paul's pastoral letters, Paul calls pastors not to a different standard than Christians necessarily, but to an exemplary standard of the Christian life. And it makes sense that Paul's qualifications would be character qualifications, that they are to guard their life and their self and their house well before they're entrusted with the greater responsibility of guarding God's church 
So I think Paul's warning here is intended to say to the guardians, look out for wolves, but look also, check yourself to make, through your own sin or through your own susceptibility to bad teaching, to make sure that you yourself don't become a wolf. A couple years ago, there was a book that was released called Dangerous Calling by a guy named Paul David Tripp. And it was passed around in ministry circles as kind of the, uh, the, just the like exemplary book on the call of the pastoral task. I mean, The Dangerous Calling is the title, and it's about pastoral ministry. And on the back, there's five blurbs. And three, that the book was written in, say, 2014. and 2023, three of those five guys are completely out of ministry. One is facing jail time. The other has blown his life up with immorality. And the other has deconstructed and is making a profit or attempted to make a profit selling deconstruction kits. How ironic is it that the book that's about the dangerous calling of ministry, five of those who endorsed it, three have now fallen out of ministry. A friend sent me this quote this week. This comes from C.S. Lewis. Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. So what do pastors do? They guard the church, but they guard themselves. Notice in verse 28. Paul gives us a secondary reason for why the church is deserving of being guarded. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The church was bled for by the Lord Jesus. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus. And Christian in the room, you have no ministry aspirations. And you feel like this passage does not apply to me. What I would say to you is look how you are described in verse 28. You have been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus and you belong to him. It's our hope in life and death. The church is not the pastor's or elder's church. The church is not even the church's church, if you understand me. Jesus is the chief shepherd, the one who bled for these sheep, ultimately the one who purchased these sheep, ultimately. And the Lord Jesus gifts his church with pastors. And the reason that when we think about things like pastoral abuse and church hurt, that it lands so deep is because we recognize how counter it is to this calling. These sheep belong to Jesus. And yet sometimes these shepherds exploit the very sheep they're called to protect. It's worth pausing here for a second and just acknowledge the online discourse over recent years about abuse within the church. Pastoral abuse and church hurt. And as you look around the room, I mean, I know so many of our stories, to different degrees and in different ways, have been tainted with the reality of spiritual abuse and pastoral abuse and church hurt. But I want, I want to be careful because there's two errors that we can make with this particular topic. One error is to assume that it doesn't happen. One error is to say that it's too rare to even speak about it. Or one error is to chalk it up as just the, the forces external to the truth, you know, trying to trying to undo the church. But I think our own experience speaks to the reality of spiritual abuse in the church and that there's no church who is exempt from it. And I think Paul's teaching here would force us to acknowledge that spiritual and pastoral abuse is a thing. A day doesn't go by, again, where we don't see some high-profile scandal involving a Christian leader. And again, how many of us here have been hurt by bad leaders or abusive pastors or deacons or other Christian leaders? The same member that I mentioned a moment ago, he sent me this quote 
this week as well. It comes from Michael Kruger in a book called Bully Pulpit. Defining spiritual abuse, he says, Spiritual abuse is when a spiritual leader, such as a pastor, elder, or head of a Christian organization, wields his position of spiritual authority in such a way that he manipulates, domineers, bullies, and intimidates those under him as a means of maintaining his own power and control, even if he is convinced he is seeking biblical and kingdom-related goals. It's hard to read Acts chapter 20 and not think about the reality of spiritual abuse. The reality of these kinds of people becoming leaders within churches who use their spiritual authority to manipulate, domineer, bully, and and intimidate. The call to guard the self and guard Jesus' sheep is a call against spiritual abuse. And spiritual abuse is a failure on both of these fronts. Again, Michael Kruger says that the term spiritual abuse rightly highlights the core reason this abuse is so devastating to Christians. Namely, because it was perpetrated by the very pastor or elder board who was supposed to protect them. These are Jesus' sheep. Jesus gives pastors to protect his sheep. And what could invoke the wrath of the Lord Jesus more than pastors who exploit his people? Pastors shepherd on behalf of Jesus. These are Jesus' sheep. And listen, make note of this. No one hates abuse of his church more than the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 18, I mean, I tremble at the thought. He says, for those who would cause the little one to stumble, let a millstone be thrown around their neck and thrown into the sea. We can't deny the reality of spiritual abuse, and we can't deny the intensity with which Jesus opposes it. We cannot understate it. But we also want to avoid an error in the opposite direction. There is a risk of overdiagnosing spiritual abuse in the life of the church. And I think there's two distinctions we can make here. The first comes from an article by Trevin Wax, the guy that I've read off and on for the last 10 or 15 years. He writes this. He says, if like me, you care about the people who have been hurt by pastors known for bullying behavior, manipulative words, and a haughty spirit, and if like me, you want to see renewal in the area of leadership in the church today, then I appeal to you. Watch out for a phenomenon taking place largely online that has the potential of derailing reforms in the church when it comes to matters of spiritual abuse, mistreatment, and harm. I'm referring to the dilution of words like toxic abuse, hurt, trauma, and harm in online discourse. Call it concept creep or word dilution. It's the ever-expanding connotation of these words in, in ways that ironically diminish the stories and experience of those who have truly been abused. He's saying if we hate abuse with the same intensity that the Lord Jesus does, we have to be clear on what it is and be careful against overdiagnosis, which dilutes the reality of those who have been abused in church situations. In that article, he goes on to distinguish between abuse and ordinary harm. Ordinary harm, he says, is what it sounds like. It's the reality of sin in pastors, intentionally and unintentionally. Pastors are not exempt from harming with a lowercase h and sinning against others. Sometimes in ignorance, they misdiagnose, or they don't know the whole story, or they jump to conclusions, or they make prejudgments, or they're gruff, and they're kind of a lughead when it comes to relating to people. They have this emotional intelligence of, of a potato. Sometimes ordinary harm in moments of gentle sinfulness as well. Uh, they, they lose their patience, or they hold grudges, or they speak, speak ill of people unjustly. And again, if, I, if I'm honest, I can think of instances where I have done this. There was an instance in our church where I walked with a couple who had deep marital issues, and, and it messes with me to this day. 
But I, I, was, I was working with them, and I, I lost my patience and raised my voice and essentially spoiled the relationship. We have since reconciled, and they remained at our church for several years, but they ultimately moved on, and I can't help but feel some regret in that. And to be clear, that is a, that is a failure on my end. That is sin on my end. But we must distinguish spiritual abuse from ordinary harm. And I think it's also helpful at this point to distinguish spiritual abuse from what we could call something like pastoral confrontation. Spiritual abuse, yes, it must be killed and rooted out. Ordinary harm, yes, is a tragic reality of being pastored by sinners. But also... Pastors are given to guard, and sometimes that looks like confrontation, and sometimes it's painful. Sometimes you're in the wrong, and pastors are responsible to provide correction to that. Maybe you're in a sinful pattern of behavior, or you're thinking wrongly about something. Maybe we can see it, and you can't see it, and we feel the burden to confront you. And you know what? Sometimes it hurts, and it feels like a kind of church hurt because it is in some ways. It's hurt in the same way that surgery hurts. It's a short-term harm that leads to long-term health. And culturally, we're just in a place where any kind of challenge to the way that we're living our life is just unbearable to hear. We're autonomous. I'm the captain of my own ship. I do my own thing. Who are you to challenge me in anything I say or do? So when we're confronted, it hurts. But it's important to say this, that a part of the pastor's calling is guarding, it is correcting, it is speaking the truth in love. And that's not abuse, that's shepherding. It's important to point out, even knowing the reality of spiritual abuse, that God still gives his church pastors. Even knowing the reality of ordinary harm, God still gives his church pastors and commands them with vigilance and intentionality to guard Jesus' church. So are there bullies and people who enjoy wounding people, drunk with power and love exercising it? Yes, there are. Are there pastors who get things wrong, who misperceive what's going on, they come in too hot and heavy? Yes, ask me, I'll give you tons of examples where I have done exactly that. And do sometimes believers need correction? And does the Lord instruct pastors to speak the truth to the body to say, hey, let me come alongside you and explain why we need to tweak this or change our patterns of behavior or thinking? Yes, There is not a being in the universe who hates abuse more than Jesus, who purchases these precious saints with his own blood. And so we must be clear on what abuse is. But we must also be clear that the Lord Jesus gives his pastors to lead. And it's because of abuse and wolves and lies. It is precisely that reason that Jesus gives his church pastors. Let's keep reading, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's so beautiful. As Paul is completing his speech, he, he says that he's commending them to God. I'm moving on, but I trust that the Lord will use you and he will care for you and he will care for his church through you, pastors. Verse 33, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. He says, remember, I did this not for greed or not for my own glory, not for money, but no, I was fruitful and productive and I was able to help the weak and able to give. I showed you in my life that a desire to serve as the Lord Jesus served, to give myself as he did. 
Verse 36. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Paul doesn't draw attention to this piece necessarily, but Luke does. The way that Paul is loved by these people. I can't help but think, I mean, this has got to be instructive in Luke's mind for pastors. To have the same kind of love. To, God forbid, if we were to have to depart, I mean, would it, be, would it be said of us that there was tears and that there was love like this between me or between any of our elders in this church? So how are we to respond to this? I think, honestly, the, the, the obvious first word is for me. This is Trevor needs to hear this, inject this into Trevor's veins, just nurse on this and nurse on this and just keep on feasting and learning and growing in humility, faithfulness and courage, guarding myself and guarding the sheep. It's the first word, just this is, give this to me. But secondly, I think there's a word to all of us who aspire to ministry. The call is to guard God's sheep and to guard yourself. If ministry is on the radar for you, this is what Jesus is calling you to. It's not to have a church It's not your people or your ministry. It's to care for these sheep on behalf of the Lord Jesus. And it's to do so with the characteristics Paul mentions above. With humility, faithfulness, and courage. I ask again, do you get lost in service of others in humility? Are you faithful, playing and prioritizing the long game? Are you single-mindedness in ministry? Are you courageous? Are you bold or are you completely constricted by the fear of man. If you're interested in leadership in God's church, this is a great place to start. There's certainly more that can be said, and there is more that is said by Paul elsewhere, but start here. I think the other word that we can take from this passage, the the other way that we can respond, and I can say this with completely clear conscience, is that we can celebrate the elders of Ridgewood Church. Speaking as, speaking as a guy who has looked on to these four other guys who have served over the last several years, I say that, that we can celebrate these guys who take this call seriously and who embody humility and faithfulness and courage incredibly well. You might not, not know about our lengthy slack threads that, that are long and they go on forever and ever and ever. You might not know about the hours they spend praying and thinking and wrestling and teaching and, and leading you guys. You don't know about the sleep they lose. Their wives and their kids can testify that this is the case, that these brothers love this church. Josh is one of our lay elders. In summer of 2017, he became a lay elder at Ridgewood. He's an absolute legend at North Greenville University. His powerful handshakes aside, Josh has incredible, just embodies an incredible kind of courage and hope in God. You cannot talk to Josh without him just just seeing his delight in God and God's care for him just come to the surface. I have always been moved by his deep and genuine concern. You cannot talk to Josh without him finishing by saying, hey, tell me about, how's it going, man? How you holding up? How are things these days? Tell me more. I think about Zach, who's been a lay lay elder since fall of 2018. We joked years ago that Zach was a grumpy old man in a 30-something-year-old body, (laughs) which is probably more than a joke. It's probably true. But, But I think this also... It's a, it's a piece of how wise Zach is beyond his years. I've been so amazed by how much good sense that he brings to the elder meeting again and again and again, just a great leadership sense and just sees things really clearly in a way that just brings clarity for our team. And he's a great teacher and a great dad and brother, husband, father, everything else. 
I think of Aaron, our discipleship pastor. He became a discipleship pastor summer of 2020. He is incredibly hardworking, relentless in caring for the church. He is incredibly passionate about seeing you, about seeing you mature in Jesus. He is super hospitable, and he is like the social glue of our church. He somehow keeps all of us connected, and it's amazing, his capacity for doing so. And then Jim, who's another of our lay elders, who became an elder in the fall of 2020. Legitimately one of the most brilliant guys that you will ever meet. Full stop. But he's brilliant and he loves Jesus. And somehow his brilliance does not take away at all from his love for Jesus. With his whole heart and with his whole mind, he cannot speak about the things of God without tearing up. It's amazing. He's deeply loyal and he loves being a part of Ridgewood Church. These guys love Jesus, and they love you, and they take deeply the call, take seriously, in a very deep way, the call to guard Jesus' church here at Ridgewood. So I think one, that, one way that we're to respond to this passage is to thank God for these guys that the Lord has provided. Would you also just love these guys? Express your appreciation for these guys. Would you make it a joy to be pastored by these guys? And would you pray for these guys? Typically during this time of our service, we, in response, we pause and we just ask the, uh, ask the Lord to kind of lead us individually and direct us in how we're to pray. But as we kind of come into this reflection time, what I'm just going to ask everyone to do is to just pause and pray for the pastors of Ridgewood. Would you pray for the guys that the Lord has put in place? Would you pray for their wives? Would you pray for their kids? And would you pray for those that the Lord could raise up from our body to pastor here or elsewhere? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe it feels like a lot of what we've discussed is some uh, insider ball, insider talk, and that's okay. The invitation for you is to become a part of the inside. If you're here this morning and you're with a friend who brought you and you're not a believer, I would love to speak with you. Your friend who brought, brought you would love to speak with you about any of the things that we've discussed this morning. I'll be out here in the lobby after service is over. But in these next few moments, the call for us is, is could we just pray for the pastors that the Lord has given to Ridgewood? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. You bought us with your blood. We belong to you, and we want our lives to be fully devoted to you. Every nook and cranny of our hearts, we want it to be yours, Jesus. We want to follow you with every bit of ourselves. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the, the men that you have entrusted to lead and pastor Ridgewood. We pray again for their protection. We pray again for their own hearts and their souls. We pray for their families. We pray for the faith of their children. We pray also for the, uh, the men in our body that you are working in now, raising them up to one day be elders here or elders elsewhere. God, we pray that you would allow us to be a fruitful church that's always just flinging people out, seeing folks raised up to ministry. And Lord Jesus, we pray also for those who have borne the burden of being abused and manipulated by those who are in leadership in the church and how this particular passage and some of the elements of this have, have struck a nerve. We pray for your comfort to be present with these brothers and sisters as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for providing for us and we pray that your spirit would work in our midst in these next few moments.